0: I will date myself to say the clock on the wall says it's time for this week's curtain call. So I'll simply say, listen up, my friend. Here comes Spectrum West again. Yes, this is Spectrum West. I'm Al Ross, materializing into your day with news, views, and personalities engaged in the abundant arts, culture, and humanities of Western Wisconsin. This week, this is radio, so we thought a cake was a bit of a waste of time. But we do want to do our part to wish the people at Volume 1 a happy 20th birthday. At times, it seems like only yesterday. Others, well, it feels like it's been around twice that long. Such an active and involved medium group, and our guest is founder and publisher Nick Meyer. Thomas R. Smith, one of our favorite poets and neighbors, he lives in River Falls, has recently released another book of poetry. It's safe to say all of Thomas's work comes straight from his heart and his soul. But this book, Medicine Year, comes from a bit of everywhere. It's about the year 2020 and how deeply it touched him and everything around him. We're also going to pay a visit to the galleries of the Heidi Center to engage with Patricia Mayhew Ham. If you're in the art world, that's all that needs being said. I'll introduce that segment momentarily, but I want to begin this week's program with an announcement of sorts. Actually, it's more of a... A family meeting with you guys, the Spectrum West audience. You're so much more than just people listening to a radio or a device each week. You work together, you promote each other, you plan and hold special events, concerts, theater productions. And if you're not on the doing side, you're on the supporting side. And it turns out to be such a marvelous, smooth-running relationship. And I'm the fortunate guy who gets to talk with you about all that you're doing. During my COVID experience a few weeks back, some of the tests I took to figure out unexpected symptoms revealed some conditions unrelated to COVID. And it appears as if I'm in store for some. And here's the kicker. Don't know yet. I've had a couple um, of, let's say, a whole mess of tests and a couple more on the way. Some conclusions need proof, and then I'll know more about what kind of treatment awaits. The reason you need to know that is because we're friends and always honest, but it'll probably affect my attendance record. That's why good friend and retired public radio guy Dean Collenbach is here, because he's been kind enough to let me know that he's willing to help out once the picture and schedules become clear. Dean, thanks for showing up. It's good to see
1: you. Good to be here. The,
0: uh, Sorry to pull you away from the chickens and the bees. I'll, I'll
1: tell you, I, I, I've finally discovered what I'm good at, and, and that's being retired. I'm I'm quite excellent at it. Are you? Yeah, um, I think I'm. I think I was made to be retired. Boastful, even. Yes. I think yeah, I, I got cocky in my old age you're yeah. at. It's so cool
0: that uh, you know when all this stuff arose, I was. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't hesitate, and it, it, it. I knew who to go to, and thanks.
1: Well, you're welcome. And i tell you, you know, you and I, you were talking earlier about the relationship and you and I have both spent a lot of time in public radio, but we had a significant amount of time in our careers in commercial broadcasting as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're both consumers of commercial broadcasting. I have no rap against it. But the special relationship in public radio because of that direct connection to the listener. I mean, we are there to serve the listener. There's not another there's not some other entity like an advertiser that we have to be uh, focusing our programming on. And, and so that relationship, that with membership drives and that sort of thing, we, we just get to know folks in a more direct way. Even people we haven't met, it still feels like a, a closer connection. And I think that that's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that sort of support that you're feeling, and I think we'll feel down the line as you know what's going on. I think that's going to be significant.
0: Yeah, and you're talking WPR in general, but Spectrum West is yeah. such a such a wonderful program given, uh, you know, the makeup of its audience. It's not a cliche to say that we
1: all hang out together. Well, and 400-some shows you've done, right? How many guests have oh, been through 600, these? 600. 600-some. 600. How many guests?
0: I don't want to. 617 maybe, okay. let's put it that way. Approximately.
1: Are <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you counting this one? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh but i mean so many people have been have had conversations with you through the years you know guests uh who have been through these doors and uh you know those are people who are connected to and and are going to be following what's going on with you for a while yeah
0: well you were here at the beginning of spectrum west and, and and your support of the program has been crucial and it's been appreciated over the years again my road uh, has not straightened out yet, so Dean's capacity may include doing a segment uh, on the show now and then, uh, probably hosting a program somewhere along the lane uh the way. no matter the capacity um, I'm grateful we're all fortunate to have Dean around willing and so able to suit up and I appreciate that and and uh again, thanks for coming in and uh, sure um, uh, bees and chickens doing well,
1: they're doing fine, yeah, yeah yeah.
0: You do look good. You know, you you really do. You have uh, you you're good at retirement. I didn't
1: I didn't think you would be. I, I was wrong. Dropped about twenty five pounds because I'm not sitting behind a desk all day. Wow.
0: We'll be talking to you. Thanks. You bet. Patricia Mayhew Ham, 60 years the artist, the mentor, the matriarch, and through August 17th, the host of Bold and Beautiful, a retrospective in all the gallery space at the Heidi Center in Chippewa Falls. It's a look back, and it's your opportunity to look around your home to see where an original might look good, because most of what is on display is also for sale. Early works of realism and many of her best abstract pieces— when talking with someone of such experience and complexity like Patricia, the conversation may tend to ramble. But let's begin with a curiosity about putting a workspace together. She lives up in Shitek. How does, uh, it's not in my notes and I never thought about this, but how does uh, an artist go about putting a studio together? How do you find out what you need or is it a space that grows with you?
2: Well, if you've been an artist for a long time, you know what you want. If you haven't been an artist for a long time, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. I think I need that because I saw it in a magazine or something.
0: Do you like music when you work?
2: Yes. Uh huh.
0: What kind of music do you like? Or is it a little bit of everything?
2: Everything except country. <laughs>
0: So we're sitting in one of the galleries here at the Heidi Center in Chippewa Falls. Lovely place. People can always tell when we're in the Heidi Center because of how our voices kind of echo and the rooms are so classic. Your work is in how many rooms here? Four. So on the other side of one of these freestanding walls that they've erected so that they can put as much up as possible is a painting that you did when you were 16 years old and it's of a pine tree and a fence and there's snow on it. Tell us about Patricia of 16, what did art mean to you back then?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> I've always been interested in art, but I didn't have any aspirations.
0: Did you come from an artistic family?
2: My mother's artistic, but she never painted everything, all the other crafts you could do and you could think of, and she encouraged me to do all of them, but it was never a case of you can be anything you want to be. Uh-huh. I'm from an era where they didn't tell their daughters that.
0: That painting that you did when you were 16 is there... Tell me about the time when you decided, uh, if there was such a time, maybe it was just a slow evolution, that you said, I'm, I'm going to make art what I do.
2: It was a slow evolution. I started numbering my paintings in 1990, and uh, they're now numbering uh, 1,145, I think. And somebody asked me, why did you put one on a painting when you did that? And I said, I had no idea. But I probably had a bunch of them done, and so I may, maybe had one to ten. I numbered them then, and I do have number the number two painting is exhibited here. It was loaned back to me.
0: Are you exclusively more abstract now than realism? Uh huh. When did that transition happen?
2: Oh, that was a gradual thing too. I I originally painted in oil, and then I got I, I'm a very patient person. It that takes too long to dry. I started adding. Uh, acrylic, I think it was. I thought watercolor would be interesting, but it was too insipid, I thought. And I talked to Alan Servas because I said, it's so boring. And said It doesn't have to be. It can be brighter. So Alan told me that. Uh, (laughs) So I started, some of them here are watercolor and they're bright watercolors. They're not pale. Um, So I found that I can do that. And I've tried everything different. I wanted to do anything different. I started painting on Yupo about 20 years ago. It's not paper, it's plastic. And so paint acts entirely different on it. When you put the paint down, some of them fight. They don't want to blend.
0: They don't play well together. They
2: don't play well together at all. And that's what makes it exciting, because I don't plan anything. The only thing I know when I start painting is what color range it's going to be in. I tell my students I have three things, color, contrast, and composition.
0: We all start out drawing stick people, and our stick people kind of look the same. Uh, We draw what we see or what we're imagining when there isn't a subject to look at. There was a quote, I want to interpret what I see.
2: I do. Here a lot of them have forms in them that are tree forms or leaves or something like that. Some of them don't have any forms at all. They're just shapes. You may see a petal or something like that. And I also like layering leaves over top of leaves, which is painting negatively. You're painting the space between the leaves. And that is really fun to do, painting negatively.
0: I have some deep questions for you, but that's what abstract's about. That's it. People who are in artistic fields, whether they are artists or writers or musicians or theater people, they find themselves very seldom looking ahead. They are very live-for-the-day type of people, and they can't escape where they've been. Artists leave a trail. The trail that you leave is your work.
2: I guess so. Yeah, you're right. As far as looking ahead, you might be right. I have some here that I started, and I thought, oh, that looks all so right. and I go back and look at them later, I thought, oh, my God, it's awful. And then sometimes I paint another painting on top of it, and it changes the first painting. It just changes it enough that I like it.
0: I wondered about, because again, here, here's the quote, I want to interpret what I see. You know, you just don't want to paint what you see, you want to interpret what you see. So the act of interpretation, and this is throughout a 60-year career, we might note. let's Let's lay the groundwork. How long do you think you've been an abstract artist?
2: Hmm, probably 20 years, 30 maybe.
0: So within the span of your 20 to 30 years as an abstract artist, do you find yourself interpreting in everyday life? I mean, we see a lot of things in any given day, but then I thought, is it your mind that is abstract, or is it just your mind when the abstract switch is turned on, or are you always interpreting things you know, this just feels natural, so I must have been doing this for a long time.
2: I think you're right. I see, I see, I can see abstract in the corner, just just seeing, seeing shapes and compositions and things like that when there's nothing there. I'll see it in anything. <laughs> really? Yeah, and it just fascinates me. And once in a while, I'll sketch something out, but not very often. I'm, I'm seeing them constantly.
0: So when you see a kid sitting in a red wagon holding a balloon...
2: I wouldn't see a kid in a red wagon holding a balloon.
0: Well, that's interesting. How does that affect your driving?
2: Uh, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> I, I, love, I love talking to people like you because of your experience and your, your ability and your talent, but again, because of what you do and how you do it. Is it possible to get it wrong in abstract art, or is abstract art just carte blanche?
2: I've heard artists say that art is always good. I've seen some really crappy art, and, and I've done some crappy art. If it doesn't work, if your composition isn't getting any good, it's not going to work, ever.
0: But that's the wonderful thing about art. You may think, as you look at a piece, that it's crappy. The next guy in line will go, that's beautiful. I know. We're in one of the galleries at the Heidi Center. Our guest is Patricia Mayhew Ham, 60 years in the world of art, one of the better known and, and loved abstract artists of where we live, but again, she's well known all over the place. Abstract art to a lot of people is is difficult because they find themselves having to try to figure something out.
2: What is it? What is that? Why do you need to know what you're looking at? Do you like it or not? Is it pleasing to you?
0: You led right into my next question and that is is it always better or doesn't it matter at all if the viewer of your piece figures out what it is?
2: I've done paintings that to me they were just completely abstract. <laughs> Especially some of my students, they'll say, oh, I see what that is. I've got, you know, they figured it all out. I didn't know.
0: If the artist interprets, then the viewer also must interpret.
2: No, not necessarily, no. because abstract is, is for the viewer. So it's, if I do something and you see, you see it entirely differently, that's okay as long as you, you like it. It doesn't matter.
0: That's one thing I was going to say. How does an artist feel if their impression... Somebody's standing in front of one of your pieces of work and you overhear them telling the person next to them or commenting on it. How does it make the artist feel if their impression isn't even close to what it was you were looking at when you, when you created this piece?
2: But I don't look at anything when I create something. It all comes out of my head.
0: That brings up an interesting dilemma. You paint something and it came from your head.
2: I have a weird head.
0: A good weird head. <laughs> Let's say that painting was done 10 years ago. Can you remember what it was that was in your head when you painted it, just by looking at that piece?
2: No, I have a couple of them that really puzzle me. What in the world was I doing?
0: <laughs> is abstract art hard, or is it easy, or is it uh, somewhere in between?
2: For me, it's natural. Now, 25 years ago, it would not have been, because I wasn't confident. All artists go through that, you know, that they don't know their work is any good or not. If anybody's out there who's painting, keep painting, don't quit. And if your mother or grandmother or husband or uncle doesn't like it, too bad. Do it anyway. I've seen people stop painting because somebody didn't like what they painted.
0: Is it a true statement to say that abstract art can only come from experience? Because you said a a while ago that uh, the only way that you could get into abstract art is because you became confident.
2: I think so, yeah. It, It worked for me anyway.
0: You know the old line, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And we apply the word beauty and beautiful to a lot of artwork. So when one views a piece of your work, what's in their eye? What do you want it to be? Do you want it to be beauty? Do you want it to be intrigue?
2: Looking around this room, everything is so different. Because they're all mine, they're they're all going to reflect on what I do. But in other, other situations, not so.
0: In this exhibit, what are we going to find? We're going to find some early work. That is, in realism, I do see some still lifes, I see some other things,
2: some nature scenes. There are ones that I had painted like 40 years ago and more, and I didn't want them anymore. I told my husband to throw them away, so he didn't. He took them off the, they were on the stretch canvas, took them off the canvas, and rolled them up put them in the attic. I thought they were gone all this time. And my sons and daughter-in-law were getting ready for this show, and my son went up in the attic and found them. I, I thought they were gone.
0: I want the audience to know that this is 60 years' body of work. It's all wonderful stuff. Patricia has been a part of our fabric. For the longest time, it's such a nice legacy. Does it feel as you go through this that you're revering your life?
2: It really does, especially when we got them all here, getting ready for this show, looking through old ones. I have stacks at home of unframed paintings.
0: Of all of this stuff, 1,100 and some, is there one favorite?
2: Yes, and it's in the hallway and it's been sold.
0: You allowed it to be sold?
2: He loaned it back to us. And there's others I really like, too. A couple I don't like at all.
0: <laughs> so if it makes a statement, what is that statement? Strength. Thank you for those 60 years. Congratulations on such a wonderful life and, a, and body of work, and specifically for sharing it with us. A lot of memories here. So now when you arrive at the Heidi, you'll get a bio, an artist statement, There's also a list of what's on display and a price list of those pieces offered for sale. Prices range between $100 and $700. The Heidi website is CVCA, that's Chippewa Valley Cultural Association, dot net. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us here on Spectrum West. Always good to have you along. Remember, season tickets can now be purchased or renewed for the 22-23 season of the Chippewa Valley Symphony Orchestra. It's called a Season of Inspiration. You can go to the box office at pablocenter.org. Volume 1 is a media platform that includes most ways we communicate today. They are visual, they make noise, they host, they promote, they collaborate, they are retail, wholesale, leader, and coattail. If it makes Western Wisconsin a better place to live, you can count on Volume 1 to help pull it off. They're celebrating 20 years of doing all that and devising ways to make the next 20 even more interesting and encompassing. Co-founder and publisher Nick Meyer has been available to talk about all the good times, the innovations, nail-biting referendums, the grand openings, and yes, pandemics that gave rise to question marks that were large enough to cast shadows over all of it. Launched as a small arts and culture zine in the early days of 2002, Volume 1 has evolved into an integrated media company and community action agency that has received numerous local, regional, and national awards, recognitions, and widespread praise for its community aesthetic, and unique voice, a voice that not only reflects the hearts and minds of the community, but gently pulls them in new directions. By the way, I need to point out that in the next sentence of uh, that piece that you guys had about your anniversary, you used the word spectrum, so thank you for that plug. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, without further ado, congratulations on your anniversary. Let's start with that. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate I, that. To the beginning, I had no idea about the, uh, the Buddy Ravel's hand in your success. The seed, it turned out, that grew into Volume 1 was a, was a failed process and the frustration that followed. Quick story if you can. You liked the band and the Leader Telegram wouldn't do a story on it
3: well i don't want to i don't want to put all the blame uh for the creation of volume one on the leader telegram they (laughs) certainly have done a very good job of everything they need to do in this community for a very long time
0: they also don't want credit for it by the way
3: sure sure It, it did it started with kind of just a silly rock band that was from this community that was really impactful to me when i was in college at the university here in eau claire And that's really when I realized that, wow, really, really good art, music, anything can come from this place. I was, you know, 18, 19 years old when I discovered this band and I thought all the good music must have come from the coasts or from overseas or something. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And suddenly here was a a band that I just thought was one of the best things I'd ever seen. It was from here in Eau Claire. And so they had uh, graduated, moved off to Chicago and were coming back for kind of a homecoming show. And my little band at that time was going to be opening for them. And I was so excited that they were going to be here. I thought they were going to be the next big thing. So I was trying to get all the local media to care and pay attention. And no one, no one cared. And in retrospect, why would they? I mean, they've got bigger, more important (laughs) things to cover. But I just thought it was a travesty that this this kind of stuff should be covered in this community. So I tried everything I could to to write a story for, you know, give them everything they needed. Uh, They didn't want to do that. So I wrote a story for them. They didn't want to use that. It just didn't go anywhere. So I said, there has to be a place for this type of thing. And Mm -hmm. I got some friends together and my friend Dale Carls and I talked about that dilemma and how could we helped fill that gap, and that became the first story in the first issue of Volume 1, and haven't looked back since.
0: What else was in that first edition?
3: Well, we had uh, Steve Kurth uh, as a very successful local uh, comic book artist who's still around here in the community. We had a feature about him in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a a kind of a punk rock guy that was running uh, underground shows, literally in his mom's basement, and we had a story on him just a lot, of, a lot of music and art stuff in that first issue. Then it started to expand more into food and other community things and, and uh, recreation and stuff like that over the years, and then into more news and, and development, whatever else that we thought was part of the cultural heartbeat of where the Eau Claire community and the broader Chippewa Valley was going and what they needed to, to hear about and read about. Now,
0: how did it get to people and what was their reaction?
3: Yeah, we really had no expectation. We made one. There was no date on it, kind of on purpose. We didn't, you know, we just put one out there and we were going to see what happened next, We went around with kind of a few sample layouts to some businesses and said, hey, would you be up for advertising this kind of thing to help support this get printed? And we raised $700, which was enough to print 2000 copies of that little black and white zine in March of 2002. So we went around with a little stack and went to, you know, of course, the joint and hooligans and all the different you know, bars and restaurants and, and places around downtown Eau Claire and Water Street and said, hey, can we put a stack of these here? And people were up for that. And it just started to snowball from there. We heard from more people who wanted to write for it or contribute towards it. We uh, got kind of involved with the poetry slam scene, which was huge at the time at the Acoustic Cafe, yeah, yeah, just was yeah. packing that place with mm-hmm. all kinds of great writers and people who were enthusiastic about what they were creating. So Eric Rasmussen and Ken Smansky Ian Jacoby, and a bunch of people like that came in in the early days. And uh, we just kind of were able to keep going and keep growing it from there.
0: And, and when did the second one come out?
3: The first one was March 2002. The second one, I think, was June of 2002. Oh. Then it was July or August. And then after that, it was every month. From then mm-hmm. on until 2006, mm-hmm. where we kind of changed into more of a color tabloid format, and then it became, what, every two weeks Okay, uh, from then on.
0: Was it volume one from the get-go? Is that what you called it?
3: It was, yeah, and that, okay. that story is kind of funny. I mean, we didn't have a name for it, and mm. Dale, who I started it all with, uh, was just kind of playing around with some, some fake covers in a design program and went to type in volume one, issue one, and the typeface was set way too big, so it went volume one, just big across the top, and we didn't have a name for it, so he left that there for the moment, and we thought, oh, we'll come back and, and name it something else. And we tried and tried and couldn't come up with anything better, and we kind of reverse-justified it with the fact that, well, you know, volume relates to music or volumes of books, and uh-huh. or, you know, later on thinking, well, every issue is the, the first chapter in the next step of this community, so everyone is a volume one, to starting over and rebuilding oh, all yeah. the time. <laughs> and then you get far enough down the road, and you're stuck.
0: Why you guys? What, what credentials did you have that said, yeah, yeah, we can do this?
3: We had no credentials of any kind uh-huh. whatsoever, really. Um, we we weren't uh, educated specifically in um, you know in journalism or in, in advertising or marketing. Okay. Or you know we had but little bits of background in that. I think the qualification was that in my case, I was kind of immersed in that arts and music scene a little bit and knew a lot of the people around there. And then in Dale's case. He had done a little bit of layout for his job at the time, um, so he knew how to actually get it into a computer program and make it something. Mm -hmm. And that's all we had to go on. And very quickly, though, we had to find more talented people than us to be a part of it, whether that was writing or taking photos or doing illustrations, cover artists, all that kind of stuff. So once you start to stake a claim that, hey, we're going to do this thing, you know, like-minded people tend to rally around it.
4: Enjoying
0: a conversation with Nick Meyer, and we're talking about Volume 1 celebrating 20 years. The local store's been around for 11 of those. It feels a lot longer than 20 years to me.
3: Well, if you look at the gray hair on my head, it uh, feels like it's a lot longer.
0: That says something about your character, that you're letting the gray stay there.
3: Sure. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: yeah, no, I mean, the 20
3: years, really, but I think in part because of this, so much has transpired in this community, and like it, it's evolved in such significant ways in mm-hmm. that 20 mm-hmm. years. It does feel like more, and as we kind of look back at some of those milestones and things, we're kind of realizing, boy, yeah, some of this is, is a long time ago, and some of it just feels like yesterday.
0: Within those 20 years, there are things that you can count. Numbers of publications, uh, numbers of websites, social media feeds, likes, followers, event attendees, etc. So if you're a numbers guy, you're going to find fulfillment in studying volume one. But I have a feeling that, um, for you, uh, success feels different than that. What does success feel like? What form does it take? Ooh. Uh, well,
3: you know, for a long time, um, so much of what we did was just guided by what we thought the community needed to, to see happen, or what does it need to kind of inspire itself into the next phase of, of where this place should go. I mean, we're a very you know place-based organization in so many different ways, and we've had people over the years ask us, hey, could you come and start a volume one in Appleton or in oh. Lacrosse or different places like that? And to me. You know, my heart isn't in those places, so I don't know that I could do a good job. I'm not, you know, in and of those places, um, certainly from a business standpoint, that's a that would be a successful thing to try and, and go do or, you know, if you did succeed in those markets. But to me, it's about seeing this place thrive. So success comes from seeing, you know, hundreds of people or even you know thousands of people coming to the events that we would produce over the years. And the sensation that they would get uh, of pride of being in and and from this place and sharing this place with other people that have come to visit them or people they've tried to convince to move here or relocate or stay here, you know, in the case of youth who may have been considering moving away and things. So to me, it's always been a long view uh, on success of like, where can we get this place to go together? And that takes telling each other stories and inspiring each other with those stories uh, to embolden others to then go and do the things that they want to do in a community that helps make it better, whether that's start a nonprofit or a business or an event, just a neighborhood association, whatever that might be. So there's certainly you know, individual success and success of a business and us having You know, 25 employees and and supporting those people and their families and everything, that's all great. But as long as the broader community is succeeding and growing, I think uh, we're doing our job.
0: Talk about the editorial process, because magazines are poured over and over, edited, etc., until they're fit for publication, whereas today's media doesn't have the the luxury of time and the examination that uh, it allows. Talk about the care you take to make sure, you know, the immediacy of social media is something you're doing right.
3: Well, yeah, certainly things have changed a lot in these 20 years as far as, you know, how any media organization would work. Sure. We started as print only. Of course, there were, inter- there were you know, lots of media websites at that point, but it took us a few years to get to that point. Yeah, things function so differently with, with social media and how people talk about events and where they list events. And, and obviously, events are a big part of what we do, but there's still, I think, a very important place for you know, curation of, of local information. Anybody can post anything, anytime and comment in any way they possibly want, and it can get to be just such a mess of of uh, opinion and negativity and, and whatever else that I think there's still a... a uh, a place for, you know, well curated and edited and uh, elevate this onto a certain platform of, you know, this is a, something that the community should be aware of, mm-hmm. but it's a constant balance with the immediacy, like you say, of, of social media and being on top of stuff quickly and, and breaking news. Mm-hmm. So we've tried to evolve into it as much as we can with how we use social media and video and, and all those kinds of things, but it's, it's evolving all the time. And actually I'm heading off to the association of alternative Newsweeklies conference in Chicago, uh-huh. uh, where other organizations like ours all around the country, mostly from much bigger markets, get together and talk about exactly those issues as to where are things are okay. going. Because the pandemic did kill off a couple of our peers.
0: Finally, I had a conversation with Ann Katz a while ago, because she and I talk about so much of this wonderful momentum, sure. and progress, etc. I wanted to know about how she, and I want to know about how you, feels and feel... We are so proud of the things that Eau Claire has done and the the entire Chippewa Valley has done in the last, uh, let's say, 10 to 15 years. You feel a responsibility as a catalyst and you get accolades for that. But how about a responsibility as a logical quantifier? Is Eau Claire big enough? You know, our imaginations obviously are, but to be successful... In fruition, an idea has to be placed in the reality machine, too. We should talk about when is too much, uh, and when do we reach saturation, or is there even that possibility?
3: It's certainly a very different situation than it was 20 years ago yeah. when we first started. I mean, it was there were people that had were saying that there was nothing happening in town, and, exactly. and you could argue whether that was true or not. But these days, yeah, everybody has been emboldened to do to do their thing and to make stuff happen, like we were talking about before, and that's all positive. But you're right. I mean, there is a, a finite number of people here that have a finite amount of time to get to things um, and you do get to kind of a, you know, survival of the fittest sort of, uh, of aspect to of this. There's only so many sponsors out there to support things, only so many customers for, for stores, um, mm-hmm. and only so many ticket buyers. So it's, it's you know, the community kind of finding yourself, well, what is it what does it want to be? And that stuff sort of settles itself out. I think the pandemic probably had a little bit of a chilling effect on some of that. And that hurt a little bit in some ways uh, with, with the amount of events that were happening. Tough question, because you want to encourage as much entrepreneurship and and development and happenings as possible. I think it's just really about continuing to inspire as many people as possible to be a part of the local community. Spend more of their their time and weekends here and invest in in supporting these things and going to the stuff and bringing their friends and spreading the word. And that's the big thing. I mean, a lot of people are like, well, what can I do? Well, you can talk about these things. Spread Mm. the word.
0: You did not have any expectations 20 years ago. Do you now?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big reflection moment here. We're going to get through this party on the 30th at the Brewing Project, and after we get past that, we'll start to think about what, what might come next for the next chapters.
0: <laughs> so I'll end with, uh, with, again, another hearty congratulations. You've done a lot of good stuff in a relatively short amount of time. It's fun working alongside you at Wisconsin Public Radio in general, me specifically. Please pass along all the best. Thanks.
3: Appreciate it, Alan. All the support that you've had for us over the years has been has been fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Here's a Spectrum memo for you. Don't forget, the Spring Valley Stagehands present Pippin. I always pop the mic when you say that. Pippin. Gotta turn your head. Pippin. The musical. Now through Sunday at the Spring Valley Theater. Tickets at svstagehands.org. Pippin. There you go. I think I've got that in. Thomas R. Smith. He's been here before, and as long as he keeps writing things like his newest volume of poetry called Medicine Year, we'll keep inviting him and hope he accepts. The River Falls writer, mentor, and musician, as they say, has a way with words. Why he could be the original wordsmith. It's only a handful of free verse poets who catch my eye and ear. Thomas Smith is one of them. Medicine year is about a tough 12 months, time of challenge for Thomas, the woman he loves, and the country he works hard to help be the best it can be. It chronicles a year when Thomas and his wife were returning to health after illness, set against a background of the natural world and love. How nice is that? So the year that we're talking about.
4: This is the dreaded year 2020.
0: Your poems provide big illustrations that help us understand where everything is coming from. We can point out, of course, that uh, your wife is Krista. She's a wonderful human being. She was being challenged.
4: I'll give you the thumbnail of this. The action, quote-unquote, of this book Okay. begins Christmas 2019. On the 23rd, I was diagnosed tentatively but correctly with prostate cancer. Okay. And... And, and less than 24 hours later, she had a major stroke, Whoa. so we, uh, we, were, we were in crisis together at that time. Uh, she went to uh, United Hospital in St. Paul, and uh, I uh, flailed around for a, a few more weeks uh, dealing with my situation and finally got surgery for that in, uh, in May. Our medical people on both sides were fantastic. Uh, good, good, and they good, really yeah. helped us helped us pull through. And meanwhile, while Krista was still uh, in rehab at uh, Kinnick Care Center in River Falls, uh, mid-March, COVID moved in with some force and the lockdowns began. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was still in rehab when we were locking down. And luckily, we managed to get her out of there. and then uh, And then she was home and we had some very good times recovering Mm -hmm. together. And um, the book is a sequential record in poems of that year. I tried to make it not be a book just of illness and uh, gloom and depression because actually Krista and I at home recovering together had a very good time of it. So Mm -hmm. paradoxically, I came out of that year feeling like, Hey, this was a pretty good year. <laughs> As I say in one of the poems, it was a year when we didn't die, when you get to be our age, oh, yeah. <laughs> up in the double digits. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't take uh, we don't take life or wellness for for granted anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was an important year. That's why I called it Medicine Year. And uh, I've never done a book like this before. The poems are all dated, and one of my rules for it was okay, it's going to be almost all twenty twenty no editorial fudging in terms of placement of the poems so what you see is how how the poems came to me there's about 75 poems in the book uh, I wrote something like a, you know, roughly 250 during the year so I actually had a lot to choose from and I threw out all the bad ones which are quite a few of and tried to keep the good ones so this is this is the book
0: Thank you for that explanation. It's a bit over 120 pages of work, plus some sundry other things like an introduction, notes of the poems, acknowledgments and thanks, and a bit about the artist, the front cover. What about right. that artwork?
4: This artist is a man named John Ilg, I-L-G, hmm. uh, who lives in Woodbury, which isn't very far from where we live. And we, had, John and I had known each other kind of remotely, for a few years, and uh, when I saw this piece of his, I said, this absolutely captures the mood that I want for this book. I've been blessed by having many handsome and or beautiful looking books.
0: When I read a book of poetry, especially one uh, after which I'll be talking with the poet, I usually do some note, I make pencil sure. marks and and lines and things within the book. Some of what you and I are about to embark on might be fragmented, but happily in the end it all comes together in a way that I can never take credit for. It's just kind of a friendly process. Here Sounds we go. Sounds
4: like you've described life itself, Al.
0: Oh, I don't want to find okay. the meaning of life because if I do it's all over. So okay. Let's, okay. let's forget that. Um, okay, scratch right. that. Here we go. I have some notes on a couple earlier verses, but my first asterisk, yep. page 21, and that's a, that's a good one to share because it is somewhat defining, and ironically, it's one of the pieces that you noted could be a, a thing to talk about. It, it actually puts into wonderful words what you were just describing. and It's a thing called living alone again for a while.
4: I should say that over a period of um, 40-some years, my wife and I had been together. We probably never spent more than a couple of weeks uh, apart from each other. Uh Here I am in the depth of winter. I'm alone. I'm living alone bachelor life for three months. And I hadn't experienced myself living with myself uh, for that long a time. Hmm since I was in my late 20s, probably. Mm -hmm. So this was a shock. Uh, Would you like to hear the poem?
0: Yes, we all would.
4: Here we are. Living alone again for a while. The first week was crushingly lonely, especially the nights. Her absence shouted from every surface, every little thing she'd had a hand in, which over 40 years was almost everything. Gradually, you got used to it even in certain moods and moments relished it. You hadn't been on such good terms with yourself since you were that freewheeling bachelor, the self that had attracted her in the first place. At some point, we must take responsibility for our lives. You know that in the abstract, but it's another matter when you find yourself actually doing it, washing the dishes, half listening to public radio, only occasionally now noticing the strangeness of this home you did not make alone, but with her collaboration on every detail, a true work of art, and how different it is from where you thought you lived the day before the stroke.
0: I think people know what we were talking about now. Hope writing. so. Yeah, the book is called Medicine Year, as Thomas R. Smith and his wife Krista forged through an incredible, an incredible year. You know, a, a lot of what I did, and I, I do want you to read a couple more pieces. This happens to me when I read uh, what I consider great poetry, and I find myself putting um, segments of a poem into those little uh, pencil corners so that I don't forget. And, I, and and it usually has to do with imagery that. Well, that's pretty good. Um, Mm. And I want to bring up uh, uh, one of those. Page 39, there's a poem called Good News Below and Above. This is some of the stuff, folks, that uh, Thomas Smith does that uh, kind of knocks my socks off every once in a while. Uh, Towards the end of the poem, he, he paints this picture. A pair of sandhill cranes fly over, two crosses on which no one will die, sticking their necks out, as all prophets do, announcing to the world in its moment of pain and fear a fresh testament, laughing their kind of prayer. So you see, those are the kind of things that hit me. So great job on that one.
4: Thank you. It's a, it's a treat to hear you read uh, the
0: line. And I hope you don't mind that I'm taking some of this out of context. No, if at any no, time I do take anything out of context and you don't like how that's going and you think the audience should know more of it, tell me and we'll, we'll include it.
4: Well, let me just make a comment about that excerpt. It was written around the time of Easter, so, you know, the crosses were on my mind and I couldn't help noticing the sandhill crane flying configurations. It really looked exactly like flying crosses. That's why that association came in. I had also been starting a new practice of Qigong uh, related to Tai Chi. It's a a Chinese energy healing art. When we had our illnesses, I got very interested also in some alternative healing modes. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a great believer in what's called integrative medicine. You try to take the best of all of the medicines that are available to you. Qigong was was part of my medicine from my medicine year.
0: Good. On page 54, it uses a word that's new, but I like it, squinching. I don't know that I've heard in all my years the word squinch, too squinch, squinching, squinched. Tell me about squinching. Would you like to hear that poem? If it helps me and people out there who are saying, you're right, Al, I don't know what squinching means either, (laughs) then you go ahead.
4: It's just my word for when you kind of squeeze your eyelids together and make a little little face around the edge of your mouth. It's kind of like squinting, but it's a little more forceful. I might as well read it. There are many poems in this book that are about Krista and about her progress recovering from the stroke. So this is one of them, Squinching. There was a short period a few days that felt longer for their uncertainty. When with few words at your disposal, you communicated, those moments when you were awake, by a series of exaggerated near-comic facial expressions. I remember one in particular where your eyes squinched and mouth grimaced a kind of faux smile. It was as if you were trying to squinch yourself back to the life you'd left. With effort, wake yourself from the strange dream of hospital beds, tests, and medications. Grimace it all away and come back to your easier former self. All of this I saw again this morning as you woke safely back in our bed, grimacing, squinching up from the grace of a normal sleep.
0: I got it. I got it. And knowing Krista, as I do, I can picture her squinching. Let's see. I have something marked page 55, Great Smith Line. Uh, there's a line at the end of a poem called The Crab Apple Tree. Every mm-hmm. promise life makes to a young person in springtime. You have some in-memoriams yeah. in the book. You have a George yeah, Floyd tribute. Right. Then, as I physically leaf towards it, okay. I want to get to page 76. It's a poem that's called Forgiving Our Bodies. Yeah. That poem is wonderfully done. It's so universal. It's so right on. But I do urge people to run to page 76 as soon as you have your copy of Medicine Year, because it, uh, it's, it's as I said, it's wonderfully done. And then on page the 70... The older
4: listeners will understand.
0: All right, here's another one where I took out just some words from a sentence. Page 79 includes a poem called Vulnerability. My notes here say truer words were never spoken. And here are those mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. Once you've seen someone in their vulnerability, your relationship with them can never be the same.
4: Well, heck, why don't we read this one, Al?
0: Let me do this first. Let me tell people we're on the phone with Thomas R. Smith. And our topic is wonderful, newest book, Medicine Year. It's full of poignancy and leaves us with hope and smiles and squinches. Here comes a poem called Vulnerability.
4: Just to preface this, it was written in August, but it flashes back to our original crises around Christmas of 2019. My publisher immediately pegged this book as uh, a love story, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but she was absolutely right. It has lots of different kinds of poems in it, but overall, it's a love story. This is called Vulnerability. I drove her to the ER, followed the ambulance to the city, practically lived at the hospital while sleeping alone in our house the whole three months the stroke took her away from home. What I didn't learn until later, as she recovered, was that once you've seen someone in their vulnerability, your relationship with them can never be the same. Some firewall of protection goes down, and then you must step forward to be her shield, her defender against the dangers, and loving her, find that she's become even more precious to you than she was before.
0: When autumn comes, I mean, your descriptive abilities have me marking favorite lines with many of the poems of fall. Then we get to uh, December. You have several called Advent Candle and then a topic. One poem is called Advent Candle Peace, in which you wish peace for many things, human and otherwise. Let me lay this on the audience. See if these lines don't sink a hook into you. Peace to the bear in her leafy den, giving birth in her sleep, as it seems that poets sometimes do. And uh, my favorite of that poem was Peace to the clouds, shielding the sun from the glaring follies of humans below. Ain't that the truth? Well, poet, poets are good observers. Uh, they write about what they see. They're probably even better censors. One of the first notes I made after, after reading this book the first time was, what does hardship do to a poet? Was it because... 2020 had so much to write about? Did it turn out to be therapy? You said you threw away a lot of them. You made lemonade, it seems.
4: All of the above, yeah, absolutely. I think part of the reason that poets write, it's the same reason that other artists create. It's how we really learn and understand what we're experiencing and what we feel and even what we think ourselves. There was so much coming at us all that year we were all turned in on ourselves. Being turned in on yourself can be either destructive or constructive. If you can make something from it, create something out of all of that strangeness and all of that brokenness, you know, so put some kind of mosaic together, then I think it it, it actually enhances your health, and that was my experience. You know, poets are always looking for subject matter, and my God, we had it handed to us on a plate in oh. 2020.
0: You had a three-course meal, man. <laughs> Thomas R. Smith, thank you for giving us the kind of words that we need to curl up with and the kind of words we need to carry around and the kind of words we need to use as ingredients in our own medicine. We can always count on you. Thanks.
4: Thank you so much, Al. So wonderful to talk about this. May we all be well. <laughs>
0: medicine year. Add it to your library, I suggest. Thanks to Rick and Kate for the plugs and thank you all for hanging with us. You can catch archived past episodes of this show called Spectrum West at WPR.org or there are podcasts out there that carry our noise as well. Next week, we hope to talk with a uh, guitar professor. Yes, they have one now. Jerry Way is at it again. There's an inspiring time going on in Chippewa Falls and more. Thanks for understanding whatever's next. We'll travel the roads together as we always have. Altoona's River Prairie Creative District presents Movie Nights at the Prevea Amphitheater. Friday nights, July 22nd, August 5th, and August 19th. Bring lawn chairs, blankets, and snacks for a terrific family encounter. Thanks, Dean Kallenbach, for showing up earlier today, too. I'm Al Ross. Have a good week and week next week. See you then.